So it's funny, uh, Matt, you mentioned um, we didn't start the fire. You want to hear a, a real Long Island Hours story? Oh, hell yes. Give uh, it to me. My, uh, my grandfather uh, lived out in Suffolk County, not far from uh, where Billy had one of his homes. And one of my grandfather's friends was like a maintenance guy, right? So he worked for Billy Joel. Back in the, I'd say like mid-80s, late, late 80s, he, uh, this maintenance guy goes over to Billy Joel's house. And uh, Billy Joel's sitting in his office, and he's like, I need this done and that done, whatever. So the guy looks around Billy Joel's place, and there are just tons and tons and tons of like Time and uh, Newsweek magazines going all the way back, you know, to like the <laughs> 40s and 50s. And the guy's like, what the hell? What? He's just really, really obsessed with like Henry Lewis or something like that. And then... Uh, you know, he, he, he didn't understand until a year later the fucking song came out. It was Billy Joel getting into the fucking archives. That was his process. Motherfucker researched a fucking pop song. That is dedication. That is real dedication. I got to say, I mean, I got to give him more credit after hearing that. Uh, I mean, he was he didn't just take a bunch of lewds and start <laughs> listing things that he remembered from his childhood. I mean, he, he may have he, been on lewds also. Well, but. probably, but at least he kind of engaged with the time period yes. and its popular culture yeah. and media. And, you know, if you think about all these kind of touchstone cultural moments that uh, that he lived through, you know, what better way to get to them than to simply take all of these like popular magazines and just look at the fucking front cover. Yep. Right? And, then and just list things that happen. Yes. Without regard for coherence, <laughs> thematics, vague rhyme. The only yeah. thing you care about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of slipshod, impressionistic, totally system endless approach to thinking about history that leads you to, at the end of your song, to announce, after all that stuff that you've talked about, from the thalidomide babies to the JFK assassination, <laughs> yeah. the thing that will no longer allow you to take it, the thing after which you can't take it anymore. I forgot, what was it? Cola Wars. Cola Wars, that's right. That's it. We can't rock take and it roll anymore. Coca, rock and Rolla Cola Wars. It's like... Whatever, uh, Mian, uh, Vietnam War, <laughs> nuking, nuking Nagasaki and Hiroshima, uh, prime, uh, just part prime, of part of the minister sex yeah, and all that. <laughs> part of the rich historical pageant. <laughs> but two soda companies Pepsi and having Coke. a having a high cost uh, public relations warfare. That's the end of history, my I friends. I mean, it kind of is. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he, maybe he wasn't making a moral judgment. Yeah. Oh, my God. Maybe he was anticipating Fukuyama. That's possible. Like, he's yeah. talking about this historical process. It was the right found time. found its apotheosis, its synthesis, in... Uh, in the in the in the in the consumer world where where warfare, real conflict like Dian Dian Fu and all the right. things he talked about, yes. Korea Inchon yeah. has been replaced ah. by cola war. It's like all right, how about this? It's like commodity fetishism, but you know we have uh, social relations. Uh, you know, we 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 see like things uh, having social relations with each other, right? Yeah. And we don't understand ourselves in that process. And it's, it's the same in this instance with like violence. Yes. So it's almost like a fetishized violent form yeah. or, or something Yeah, and turned like it that. into a synthesized violence, but one that has transcended the, the conflict, the physical reality. It's merely the conflict between commodities. It is, exactly. Jo whole, jo I knew that Billy Joel was a history <laughs> teacher. He was, a, I think he was a high school history teacher. Was he really? Yes, as a oh. young man. Oh, cool. Uh, but I did not know that he was a Hegelian. I had no idea. He is clearly a Hegelian, and I apologize for ever saying that he was a corny. 
Uh, he is corny, but I have to say we should have known uh, when, you know, that one famous single from his first record, uh, The Owl of uh, Minerva Flies at Dusk. Remember that one? <laughs> yeah, yes. we, we should have known he was uh, he was really a Hegelian. The yeah, I know. He's into it. <laughs> wow. He's definitely down. That, I need to start looking at some of these other songs that I have thought were trifles. Like, yeah. wait, wait a minute. It's still rock and roll to him? What does that mean? <laughs> is he talking about sort of the way that uh, that the the – the material relationship and, and, and size of the baby boom generation would mm. make them dominate popular culture mm. for a, a supernaturally long time and mm. distort all other cultural uh, trends because of their, their dominance, because of their uh, their place sort of at the, at the, at the golden peak of right. Western capitalism. Is it an epistemological or ontological question, yes. really, right? Is, yeah. is it about being or is it about understanding? Yeah. Uh, I, I think we, we that that could be an episode in and of itself Absolutely. we'll have to go and celebrate his entire yep. oeuvre you know no, have a clearly nice listening he was a party. heavy hitter eat your heart out zizich <laughs> listen to some <laughs> billy joel songs and you'll get way more oh, i love it that he's a fucking total drunk been out of rehab like six or seven times but you know i always say this because you've been spending some time on long island i don't know why the fuck yes i have suffolk county baby uh, what's up yeah yeah i'm yeah unfortunately that's my er high mat yeah but, no uh, it's uh it's a bummer for sure yeah fucking i always kind of hated it because if you're like a suburban kid in the metropolitan area if you're from long island you have billy joel yeah but if you're from new jersey who do you got got the boss got the fucking boss man. Jeez, that's just brutal that is some goofus and gallant fucking right there brutal shit Damn, you know what? that is Jose and Ozzy Canseco. Fuck. <laughs> uh. Communist greetings, friends, fiends, and everybody in between. This is Sean KB from the Antifada with another episode of History is a Weapon. Uh, some apologies to you folks out there. It has been six months since I announced this ongoing series and uh, put out that first episode on historical materialism. Part of becoming an adult, part of knowing yourself as a human being, is about understanding what you're good at and recognizing the things that you suck at. And I will admit to you all now that I have really sucked at the diligence it takes to essentially write a 12-page paper uh, on history, uh, take about seven revisions and about 10 takes to make it absolutely fucking perfect. Uh, the history as a weapon as a monologue has been a very, very difficult task for me. So recognizing that my brain is broken, I thought that instead of a monologue, that perhaps we should have a dialogue. So for that very reason, I am proud to introduce to you our guest today. He doesn't really need an introduction. He is Matt Chrisman from Chapo ha Trap House. What's up, Matt? How you doing, buddy? Uh, let's get our Bakhtin on. Hell yeah. Let's do some fucking dialogue. Da dead ass. We um, are going to be talking about, I think, a subject that's very topical at this point in time. Uh, and maybe a question that a lot of people have out there, which is, why, why hasn't there been socialism, a socialist party, a labor party in the United States? You know, the rest of the advanced capitalist world seems to have got on this train. I mean, what's going on here? It is a mystery. Uh, it was first posed in 1906 by Werner Sombert. He looked around Europe and he saw that in countries, many of which had only had uh, universal manhood suffrage for maybe 20 years at that point, every one of them had a, f uh, a robust socialist party with deep ties to labor unions to the point where they were essentially organs of labor right. uh, in all the bigger countries, including former reactionary bastions like uh, Wilhelmine Germany. Sure. Uh, and yet the United States, which had had 
Uh, universal manhood suffrage uh, in at least parts of the country since its inception uh, and, uni- and throughout the whole country since the 1820s, Jacksonian populist tradition. Why the hell does it have a Democratic Party and a Republican Party that both try to appeal to maybe labor as a voting segment, but are these cross-class coalition parties? Exactly. What is going on? What is going on with that? And And we are living with the legacy of it, of course, to this day. The very unfortunate legacy. And just to add a a finer point onto that, um, he's looking around the world and uh, saying, you know, why isn't this expressing itself in political form? While at the same time, the United States, of course, is going through this incredibly violent process of class struggle. Absolutely. Workers and incredibly capitals. violent. Yeah. Way more violence. And you could look at the correlation there because they were denied uh, a meaningful representation in government. They were forced to uh, use violence more frequently. And then the state was much more willing to deal it out. And we'll talk about why that is. We're going to talk a lot about that very, very violent uh, history of the United States labor question, as they called it back in the day. But before we jump into the meat of things, I, uh, I want to get a little personal here. Not too personal, Matt, don't worry. Uh, we're about five feet away from each other. You don't have to worry about any <laughs> stray hands or anything like that. But uh, I don't know. We've hung out you know, a, a fair amount of times. Yeah. And uh, I think every time, no matter how drunk we've been, no matter what the occasion was, no matter who was around us, uh, we got into some very, very involved and uh, ranty and deep, nerdy conversation about some historical question or episode. It just kind of spontaneously came out of us. It's true, yeah. If we're, if we're talking, it's not going to take more than... It's like six degrees of, of some deep, uh, yeah, thorny historical issue. When we met that first time, I think it was the Lordstown strikes, right? Like we're at yes, a the 1970s, which yeah. we then turned into an episode. We yeah. sure as fuck did. And we also talked about Big Rock Candy Mountain as like yes. this uh, lumpen proletarian sort mm-hmm. of conception of a post-capitalist abundance. Yeah, where they uh, have the, the thing, but they don't have any consciousness of how to get to it. Yeah, yeah. almost like the peasants, you know, yes. are unable to be a revolutionary class, which... Yep. Again, will be very, very topical, I think, for this conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in light of that, I I think it's interesting to ask ourselves, and I ask myself this a lot, but like, why, why has your brain been broken by history? I I have a sense of why my brain has been broken by history and why I'm so fucking obsessed. I, I go so far as to say I am tyrannized by history. It weighs on me like a nightmare. What is it? What do you what is it that drew you to this particular discipline? What does it do for you? Yes, history indeed weighing like a nightmare on the brains of the living. Uh, for me, I like think back on it, and it's funny. I was on a, a different podcast, a very different podcast a while ago, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Wow. They made me watch an anime, which I'd never done before. <laughs> I, I actually, uh, parenthetically, I have to do that too for uh, uh, Alex Patax. He's going to make me watch anime for the first oh time. Oh boy, well, po- good luck, buddy. It is, it's, not, it's not for me, I'll just say that. Uh, and, they ta- and, and one of the traditions on their show is that they would ask somebody, uh, whoever they were talking to, what's their history with the show? When did they learn they loved it? How long have they been watching it? And... They asked me, and of course, I didn't have that because the whole gimmick of my coming on was I'd never watched anime before, so I, I have no history with it. It's like a foreshadowing of my future on, uh, on Alex's show, but yeah. So then they asked me instead, well, what did you have? Sorry, what did you have instead? And for some reason, the way they asked it in the context of being on the show, I could only think in terms of what was your pop culture thing? Right. What was the, th- what was the show you watched? What was, what was the game you played? Uh, uh, what was the pop culture... M- thing that you 
obsessed about. Sure. The media expression. Yeah, like the media expression is. that is yeah. also, of course, also, also consumer expression because, you know, right, right. Pokemon cards or pogs or something like and that. It becomes an identity as exactly. well. Exactly. Or yeah. video games, right. comic books, uh, baseball cards even. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought about it, and I had a little mini breakdown on the show because I felt like, oh, my God, I've never liked anything. Isn't it bad having an existential breakdown in the middle it's of the podcast? It's not great. <laughs> I mean, it, I guess some people enjoy listening to it, but yeah, it's not probably. fun to have. Those fucking uh, Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> but I was just sort of struck by the fact that I never really had a thing. I've always very lightly held my cultural preferences. Yeah. Uh, I've never really been fixated on any of them. Uh, and then I realized weeks later that I had not thought of the question the right way. Mm. They weren't really just asking me that. They were asking, what was the thing you were focused on? Not necessarily pop culture. Uh. And I realized, oh, the reason I wasn't any of those things, the reason I held all my cultural shit very very loosely, is because I was a Civil War nerd. Ah, the Civil War got you. I was, by the time I was in sixth grade, yeah. fucking obsessed with the Civil War. My mom got me all these books. Um, I had... I. I I had a whole Time Life series on them. My mom got me McClellan's biography. I had, there's these cards. Kids had fucking Pokemon cards. Uh There's cards you could order. They had a whole bunch of them for different subjects, but one of of the lines was Civil War. They came in a a recipe box, and they were big cards, about the size of a postcard, that had a picture on the front and then a historical fact on the back about battle of the Civil War, character from the Civil War, history, historical event, and you would, they'd send you, every month they'd send you a different pack and you'd fill these boxes with them. I had little pewter figurines. Uh, I had, um, I had a, a uh, model of like the Battle of Gettysburg with little dudes and, and, a, and plastic terrain that you had yes, to paint yes. to look like grass yeah, and I shit. I remember that, yeah, yeah. Uh, I had all that. I, I drew Civil War pictures. I had a, a whole sketchbook full of Civil War battle scenes. There's one I did. I took four fucking full sketch pages. I taped them together. It was it was uh it was I think uh little round or no it was yeah it was little round top. Uh like I was totally obsessed with it. And um I remember I took in junior high I was uh in a history class it was US history I was a huge awful little brown noser mm-hmm. and one semester we were doing the Civil War and I was so confident about it. I was so I was so cocky. I was like, oh, Civil War? <laughs> oh, you fools. <laughs> Don't you realize yeah. I've been studying for this for You're years? you to name the battle. Yeah, the I'll destroy anyone fronts. on this yeah. subject. All the generals. <laughs> this A is already mine. <laughs> right, right. So I was so smug about this fact that I was going to get an A. And I was going to just, oh, it's like, it's like a, a fluent native Spanish speaker going to an American school and going into ESL. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like, just crushing. Yeah, ready to own. Uh, but then in that class... There was a requirement that once one, you got assigned a day and you had to come that day having prepared a rundown of the news. I just encourage you to pay attention to the news. You just, all I got to say is three headlines that you've looked watching the news or reading the newspaper. Uh, and they told you the date in advance, but I forgot it when the day came. And the thing was, you had to get it to get an A. Uh, and so that meant I couldn't get an A in the class. Ooh. And this caused me deep, deep, deep trauma so what i did i spent an entire weekend with a time life book on his on gettysburg and on a manual typewriter i typed out a 12 i think it was about 12 page single spaced history of the battle of gettysburg not quite plagiarized from the book but i would read it (laughs) and reword it yeah and i drew a little picture on the cover and i handed it to him as an extra credit assignment that would get me an a did it get you the a well 
the guy was kind of a smart ass. Yeah. Uh, and what he did was he took it and just immediately, without looking at it, dropped it in the mm. garbage can. Ah, sick burn. Hugely sick kid. burn. Ouch. Just massively sick burn. Oof. But if I do remember correctly, so he never told me it was going to work. But if I do remember correctly, I got an A minus. Not bad. Not bad. So, to long, long, long windedly answer your question. I was, for some reason that I still don't understand, fixated by the Civil War. Was See, it's interesting, the, the Civil War, because I feel like that's one of the elements of uh, popular history that uh, is a gateway for a lot of people to get oh, into yeah. you yep. know, the whole genre. The, the one whole thing discipline. I wasn't was a reenactor, and my friend in college <laughs> was. My friend in college was a reenactor. That That is a weird perversion, if you ask oh, me. Oh, yeah, no, but, totally. But I think the the obsession of it, and, and I, I, would, I guess in my mind, I would surmise that the reason why Americans are so... Um, you know, obsessed it was of course a very important event is that maybe the pathos of like brother against of course brother, yeah you know like this this sense of disunity and, and all the and the violence and also what was you know part of it was this heroic struggle to like actually complete the bourgeois revolution right yeah. to, to get rid of slavery but i think that you were fortunate for whatever reasons i don't know what they are that you didn't get stuck into that rut because i feel like a lot of people oh, get yeah. into the civil war and they never like, leave. They never leave it. And then maybe they'll get into like World War One battles and World War Two. And I'm sorry, but like the history I'm least interested in is like military history. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the history of wars is interesting in and of itself. But like clearly you got yourself out of this sort of list of dates and generals. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yourself forward. It was you. actually thinking back on it. The, the, tra the trajectory is both in terms of my approach to history and also my approach to politics was shaped by my relationship or reflected by my relationship with the Civil War. Because I started off just caring about the battles, cool battles, drawing pictures of guys getting shot, reading about guys, unfollowed fire, saber charge, all that mm -hmm. shit, you know. Uh, and thinking also politically in terms of this was a tragic battle of brother against brother. No real bad guys, really. Right. Yeah. You know, Robert E. Lee was an honorable man. He didn't even like slavery. Yeah. I believed all that shit. Yeah. And then over time, the political dimension of the Civil War comes into focus, and you're like, wow, this was a radical fucking. This is like the most. This is the most important like liberatory army to walk the earth since the fucking Spartacus Rebellion. Sure. You know? Yeah. I mean, this is amazing. Uh, this is an army of liberation, like the revolutionary potential of it, and then how it was redirected and then uh, destroyed is like. That's the real tragedy. It's not oh, the fucking, yeah. like, you know, Clem and Bob facing each other across yeah, the no, field with raised pistols. If the, if the original sin of uh, the United States was the obliteration of the Native American people, then our cane-slaying Abel moment was certainly, um, you know, the, the failure to follow through with yeah. reconstruction after this Absolutely. revolutionary uh, yeah. revolutionary moment. So that, that it's, those two things flowered in peace. My, my, as I'm understanding the political of it, then the non-military aspects of it became more interesting and then the tendrils go out and you see how they connect to other things and all of a sudden that fascination you had as a kid with the battle of Shiloh or whatever, uh, Hornet's Nest, <laughs> all of a sudden you can see that in everything. Mm. In every, every everything from you know the life of a fucking peasant in the 13th century Italy or something, yeah. uh, or uh, 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 the suffragette battle, you know, anything, a presidential history, any strata you cut it there's something fascinating 
that reveals something else interesting, uh, all of which yeah. reflect on the politics. It's interesting because it just reminded me that like um, one of the ways that people um, characterize Marxism, uh, which I think b both you and I are very much influenced by, is that it's, uh, it's a conflict theory. Yes. Uh, and, and so you begin with a civil war, which is obviously a violent conflict, right? But then uh, I suppose you continue you know, within that strain, but understand that the conflict is not merely men at arms, you know, North versus South, Union and Confederacy, or even good versus bad, but ultimately this sort of conflict, you know, is throughout society and happening even when there is not a civil war yes. uh, at that time. Yeah. All right, so we we just basically just had a uh, historical therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's also where my politics were sharpened because as I thought about the war more, it, I focused less on the nobleness of like this confederacy or whatever to realize oh they were fighting to keep slavery that's pretty fucked up and then i looked at how that history is remembered and who now likes to defend the confederacy and to me it's like well if you like the confederacy then you are pretty fucked up mm -hmm. you got some bad ideas because mm. that was a bad art that was a bad place it's one of the worst things anybody's ever made is the confederacy oh, yeah and liking it now yeah that's a red flag and so that really shaped my politics. It's like, if, and so everything kind of flows from that. It's like, well, what were the values of the people who ended that war? The best of them, the most far-seeing of them. Uh, uh, what are the values of the people who wanted to uh, fight on the, uh, to like either stop it from happening or do a counter-revolution afterwards? And it, that's that really shaped. It, it was the guiding light of figuring out the larger question. Oh, it's a great historical question, right? Because. History is about remembrance, mm -hmm. right? It's about how a society, how a, a people's uh, write down things that actually happened and then how they interpret them right. and then what that subsequently means. So like the, the most interesting question is like not why reactionaries today would uh, uphold the Confederacy as a good thing when it was a horrific thing. But the question is like why did the majority of the white non-slave owners in the South, which were the people that actually fought that war, why did they line up with the aristocracy, you know, with the slave power uh, in order to fight this brutal war where many of them got killed. And that's where I think that's the more interesting question is when you situate in time, what was it like to be this person in the Confederacy who didn't have that large of a material stake, but maybe a psychological stake or the, some larger structural stake in it that's where i think history gets really really interesting. And i can i can tell you my my little short yeah. shorthand um I I was I was gifted as a kid, um, not mentally. I've I've always been a complete fucking idiot. <laughs> but uh, I I was gifted with um, having a great grandfather who uh, was born in Brooklyn. He was born in the year eighteen ninety seven. Wow. Uh, when I was a kid, he was just great grandpa, papa, and uh, he uh, he did everything wrong in life that you're supposed to do. Or under, not supposed to do, I should say. He uh, he worked in a factory. He was a union factory worker, so he was around fumes and dust all day with no mask or whatever, being a mechanic. Uh, he smoked uh, two, three packs a day till he was uh, in his late 80s. Uh, he would tell us as kids uh, when we were younger, he'd be like, the trick to winning at the pool is never have more than five whiskeys. I only have five <laughs> whiskeys a night. Long story short is he lived to be 103. <laughs> so of course. He did, he, uh, that's like good German stock, right? He did great work. But um, it really fascinated me as a kid to hear these stories that, by God, I wish I'd fucking recorded them. Imagine somebody living like this, these sort of connections that to, that the past, to the past that we have. Um, I'm listening to, to, to this guy who was in my family tell me about the first time he saw an automobile. 
Oh, shit. Telling me about the first time he saw an airplane, about Babe Ruth's, you know, first <laughs> appearance as a New York Yankee. Wow. Uh, being mustard gassed in World War One. Jesus. Um, you know, the, the this um, there, there was a real sense for me and I was pretty close with him that like the past is not past. Right. Um, and, and that was a very unique experience for me. And then again, like you, I was I was just very, very obsessed with um, uh, let me this this story too. my uncle he gave me a present my uncle was always giving me like books like sci-fi and fantasy books but he gave me this incredible thing uh, i wish i could find it again but it was like a um it was like a kid's history book uh -huh. but within it there was a uh it's like a flow chart that you could rip out of the book and it was about 20 feet long and uh, i hung it up on the wall of my room and it showed you like the civilizations um and the powers throughout history as like lines. Oh, running I remember through. that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I and, remember and they that. They connect together and they break oh, apart. Oh, that Sumerians thing ruled. And yeah, and there's I mean, like a little Anubis in the corner. Yeah, or and then it starts with Adam and Eve, which yeah. is fucking ridiculous. And it <laughs> ends with the Soviet <laughs> Union because this was still the '80s. But I remember just for like hours at night, I would just sit there and I would look at the little lines of like you know when Luxembourg came around, and then I would go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and be like, why is this little fucking Luxembourg you know <laughs> nation around? Is this tiny little? Yeah. Um, th there was something very. Very, very, um, I don't know, very fascinating uh, about this sort of connection between uh, today and the past. And I think that ultimately, as time went on, I think the explanatory powers of history um, are such that it became, it went from just being a pastime or a, um, a hobby or just like that discipline that I chose when I ended up going to college and then subsequently dropping out of grad school, which yeah. I think you did too. Oh, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it became something that actually I, I do believe when I say history is a weapon, as Howard Zinn said, that uh, it is a very potent um, tool that we have as socialist, communist, anarchist, whatever we are, um, because, you know, the past is not past. And um, we certainly can't go back and larp and reenact the things that our forebears did before us but we can certainly learn a what not to do and b how we got in this fucking situation that we are in today absolutely so jumping into the big question why no socialism in the united states uh why unlike britain uh germany australia even we'll yeah. talk a little bit about australia uh many other advanced capitalist countries why not a labor party why not a socialist movement and I think the explanations that we often get uh, can be, I guess, easiest easiest described uh, with the word exceptionalism, right? There's yep. something about the United America's States. America is just, it's its own thing. It's that term culture. that uh, Stalin yeah. famously coined, American exceptionalism. It's cultural Marxism. Yeah. <laughs> There's this sense, I think, that people get, it, and I think that you're taught that um, liberty... Uh, our constitution, our founding fathers. We just fathers, love, we love liberty too much we for socialism to take take root in the stony American soil we are of self-reliance. We cannot, you know, yep. bow down before. That's the Jonah Goldberg uh, thesis. He talked about how uh, we could never bow down to a king, so we could never have bow down to some <laughs> socialist medical <laughs> facility or something like that. Or because, Eugene Debs, which yeah, was very monarchical. Because we say we said, nuts to you, uh, King George. <laughs> so our liberty hearts are too fired. Isn't that... Uh, I mean, that argument is, is there's a lot of arguments that the right wing uses today against even like the most tepid forms of socialism, like AOC or Bernie yeah. Sanders type socialism. But there is still used as a weapon uh, this sense that uh, socialism is un-American, that indeed the conception that there is a struggle between classes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether that's just like a strike or whether that is, you know, perhaps even a revolution is 
fundamentally un-American in this uh, particularly exceptional country. Uh, is it fair to say that um, there might be some better explanations for perhaps uh, why the U.S. never developed this? Yeah, there's a whole range of plausible alter uh, things, uh, some of them having to do with the structure of American governance and, and politics because of that, some of it having to do with the material conditions. Uh, and I think, as in most things, uh, it's, it's, it's a mixture of all of those. Uh, you have things from the uh, sort of structural idea that says that because America got the Democratic Party so early as sort of a cross-class cross populist party, while before the labor movement really existed, before mm. there was really such a thing as a working class, one of the artisans, parties in the world. Yeah, at a time when artisans dominated and workers were relatively scarce. Mm. The other party, the other party systems in Europe came into being at, at the exact same time that mass working classes came into yes, being. Yes. Those were inextricably linked. So when they were like, okay, we're going to create some parties now, the idea of the, uh, the workers creating one was, it made sense. It was, it was obviously they are because what else are they going to do? Right. They're here now. We're starting parties now. We're starting parties now. Exists. We're a party right. or we're, we're, a, we're, we're a class of itself, in itself with interests. But there was no working class of in itself in America when the class system or when the party system was formed, right. which means that when they finally show up, these are pre-existing structures that they can't, they have to accommodate. And so they do things like try to create a, you know, third parties or the populist party whatever, and, ha and inevitably have their energy absorbed by the class democratic party yeah. that uses them as one part of a subsidiary of interest groups that make up its base. And this is actually... Again, something that um, more intelligent people will argue, right, is is the way that the American political structure is set up, you know, with a first past the post yeah. and its particular, you know, the three branches of government mm -hmm. that instead of a parliamentary system where you could have a small influential yes. socialist or communist party that could go in coalition with other groups, you had to create coalitions within the parties themselves. Yes. Cross class, but also cross, you know, interests. Because all votes sort towards meaning only meaningfully impacting one or the other parties, positively or negatively, whereas the sorting of votes in a, a parliamentary system allows for power to be non-binary, uh, some measure of power existing to a third or fourth grouping. American power is distributed binarily because your all of your protest votes. As much, I mean, it's just a fact. Like they love to talk about the libs love talking about it. Jill but Stein and her the thing is, or jade vagina eggs. They are smug and they are often totally delusional and wrong. But their banal point that voting for a third party, if you don't want the bad, the worst capitalist party to win, is a vote. Not a, It's a vote. It is taking a vote away from what you would prefer to the worst case. Yeah, legitimately. Right. That's a fact. Yeah. And that is only a thing that exists really uh, in the American as as built into it and as, as un, unchangeable. Like like uh, it, a lot of parliamentary systems end up going to a homeostasis of two parties like right. labor party and yeah, like the Tories. labor and yeah. Tories yeah. but remember well, before it was Democrats the labor SPD, yeah. before it was labor party and the Tories in the UK it was the liberal party and the Tories until labor came into being and eventually just supplanted them right that could only have happened in a parliamentary system and again going back to what you were saying um, with like a, a, a class-based party right which the United States doesn't have the the Tories and the liberals when those were the two the two major parties uh, in Britain right the Tories were representing literally the aristocratic aristocratic landed elite 
whereas the liberals were the more forward-thinking uh, bourgeoisie, essentially, right, yeah. who were arising in society at that time yeah. and had a party already to re represent their class interests mm -hmm. for free trade and for property rights yes. and, and, and all this sort of and thing. And the fucking corn law. And the motherfucking corn law. <laughs> Go back to your Polanyi, folks, and uh, <laughs> read about that embeddedness and the corn laws and all that. But I think that, like... So we so we've now gone from the exceptionalism argument, right, which we've kind of dismissed as being just bizarrely idealist and uh, yeah. explaining absolutely nothing. Then we've gone down a deeper level, which is I, I think everything that we said about that is true. But then this is the real trick. This is where history gets interesting is uh, we're going to get down to the actual structural, political, economic and geographic uh, aspects of this. Uh, and what actually separates the United States as an entity geographically uh, and in its formation from, say, old Europe or mm -hmm. even from a place like China. Or yeah. as I think you're going to argue with the Parsons, a play, uh, the, it's a book, <laughs> the Parsons book, uh, Australia, yeah. which, which has a very similar history of uh, settler colonialism. Yes. So I think... Um, it's important for folks to note, of course, that there were millions of people living on what in what is now the United States uh, before 1492. Mm -hmm. uh, those people had lived here for many, many thousands of years. Indeed. Um, Bering, Lang Bering Land Bridge, what's up? Yeah, what up? <laughs> there's, uh, I think there's not too many left, like a few hundred thousand. And yeah. uh, that, again, as I said, was, was really the original sin of this country. Um, I think like the first thing is to confront this conception of settler colonialism, um, not just because of the genocidal aspects of it, which are obviously absolutely fucking horrific, but also because of the political economic effects that has of having a frontier, you know, uh, moving forward through the American revolutionary period and up until, say, the end of the uh, 19th century. Yes. Um, so let's let's talk a bit about that. Um, I think, you know, just so folks out there know, like Matt and I just spitballed like all the shit that we're about to say at a bar, like totally drunk <laughs> in, like, in like 10 minutes. Uh, this is kind of like in our wheelhouse. Uh, we're kind of flying by wire now, but we're just going to go ahead and make this uh, make this happen. Yeah. Um, Let's light this candle. <laughs> we were talking about what, like the, the United States um, had a uh, it's it had a political revolution, but it never had a social revolution. Right. And that was by design. Right. The, the the makers of the the founding fathers, the reason they're worshipped as gods by the right wing, is because they were far-seeing, brilliant reactionaries who understood that in their quest, basically to create a better economic uh, arrangement with their their mother country, uh, uh, sort of a separatist movement of of uh, you know of landowners and and uh, and a rising uh, merchant class. Uh, they didn't want to do what often happens when uh, a, 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 an elite attempts to, to agitate, uh, which is stir up too much hope for genuine social revolution yeah, yeah. Uh, from below. The mob. The mob. And they wrote about it. It's funny. They didn't hide any of this shit. Yeah, like guys like, papers. It's right in there. The people are a great beast. Who said that? Rapping Alexander Hamilton there said that. There you go, folks. Uh, Madison dripped with terror at the thought of the rude mob taking hold of the reins of power never seen the play but i doubt that's in there yeah no not really just there's instead there's him at uh, the whiskey rebellion when he's organizing the troops yelling quote pay your fucking taxes i think is Isn't the line really he uses. 
Yeah. Wow. Whiskey Rebellion was like the uh, like the abortive sort mm-hmm. of like social revolutionary aspect yeah. of that. that and crushed by according Washington. to according <laughs> to Lin Manuel Miranda, that could be boiled down to sassy rapping Alexander Hamilton saying, <laughs> "Pay your taxes." <laughs> Why you not pay your taxes? Again, folks, this is this is this is what we're here Forget for. Forget the the, the icy <laughs> that the icy tendrils of finance capitalism are wrapping themselves. They're reaching from New York City to wrap their hands, their icy fingers around your neck in fucking rural Western these, Massachusetts. These yeoman farmers, and you're like, we fought, we literally land. fought for this, we <laughs> yeah. died for this. We are not going to let this. We're not going to give the king take turn over the king's rule for the rule of the clique of financiers, and and. Then they were put down, which boiled down to these fucking tea, basically tea part. I mean, they're just a bunch of yahoos. They're just a bunch of mayo boys who won't pay their taxes. (laughs) It's one thing, you know, of a bunch of like uh, New York merchants uh, have a tax revolt or Boston merchants have a tax revolt. Whole other thing of a bunch of dirt farmers. No, thank uh, you. In uh, in what uh, the Berkshire. Yeah. No, thank you. They do that. Oh, no. I think you touched on another important thing, too. Right. For folks to remember is that, again, United States, as it is today, not virgin land. There were people here. However, they didn't have the guns. They didn't have the germs. They didn't have the steel. Yeah. They know all about stuff. Oh, that yeah. Stuff. The social system previous even uh, to capitalism, you may have heard of before. It's called feudalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, capitalism obviously arises out of that. That's a long conversation. I tried to put a show together on that, but it was way too much out there. Even Matt. No, that's right that's like, that oh, is the Everest. Really? Like yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to suss out the fucking yeah. world systems theory yeah. from yeah. conventional way. Oh my god, yeah. It, it was too much. I mean maybe we'll get there at some point in time. But um I think it, we'll Matt, take DMT and then we'll <laughs> crack the case. Joe Rogan style. Hell yeah. <laughs> Imagine Joe Rogan but Marxist. That'd I would be, love uh, to sit him down and try to explain Brenner versus uh, <laughs> Wallenstein. Oh my His God! Eyes would be so fucking blank. They would just be wall-eyed, just what? drooling. But what if we got him though? Oh, let's That'd do it. That'd be a huge fucking. If we got let's him, do it. Three million hits. Oh my God, Rogan. Maybe someday you guys can make it up. Uh, uh, we're trying to get Felix on, and it would be ideal because he's an MMA guy. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they could bro down about everything. Yeah. Um, one of the things about feudalism is that, um, especially as it's sort of. Uh, congeals into a long-standing centuries-long social system in Europe but also with echoes in places like China you know in mm-hmm. India uh, in the East um, is that the fundamental contradictory classes within that are the producers of the peasantry on the one hand who uh, at least in the, in the in serfdom but also just you know regular peasant society they are tenants on the land of the Lord mm-hmm. sometimes they're bound sometimes they are not right but they have to kick up mafia style a certain portion of that to their lord yep. uh, in protection money, yep. essentially, right? Um, so feudalism, there's a big history there. But if we break it down, right, you've got the peasants and you've got the landlords. You have some other classes. A society in, like of orders. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's important. A society of orders, right? There are these different estates within mm-hmm. society, right? Almost like a a caste system for yeah. class. Yeah, um, with uh, different rights and privileges attendant to each. And and rights and privileges and obligations yes very very importantly right um the an interesting explanation i think and and you might agree with me on this is that going back to say like 1100 1200 a.d in europe right and we all know that 
the United States is a Judeo-Christian uh, Western civilization. Oh, yeah. We get a lot of our traditions uh, and uh, customary rights from there. If you go back into this era, the class struggle was fucking real. Mm-hmm. And not only was it really real, but in a sense, it was a, a sort of fundamental like pressure valve, like almost like this balancing act between yes. this producing class, which would you know be expropriated of a portion of what they produced, and a landlord class, right, which would be forced oftentimes to give concessions. And there was a way in which this sort of moving back and forth between rebellion and then uh, concessions yep. and negotiations kind of kept the system stable. It was, it was a stable homeostasis and uh, where class struggle was managed and relieved through a negotiation whereby pressure was relieved in ways small from something like a carnival or a feast day. Oh, uh, right, the world to, turned upside down. Yeah, to, um, to work strikes, right? work stoppages, uh, to, um, to peasant revolt. Uh, and all of these had the same uh, function, which was to provide feedback to the ruling class that things needed to change to maintain the structure. Right. And it, for generations, was very successful, and it was a very s- relatively stable system. Uh, but then we got capitalism. <gasps> Wait, there was another class? There was a yeah. marginal class? My God, is that the that? bourgeois <laughs> music? Yeah. Are those the uh, Borghese? Are those mm-hmm. the... Uh, the town dwelling merchants. Yeah, there was the just something class. a little for these guys. There was just something a little stale <laughs> about this arrangement. Yeah, there's a little stultifying. There's not really yeah. enough uh, a surplus being developed yeah. to allow for human expression to really reach its, its potential. Forces. They're Adam not, Smith yeah. had to come in ex post facto yes. and explain why that yes. feudal system needed to be gotten rid of. But I think importantly for this discussion, European civilization under feudalism has, as Matt said, this kind of homeostasis, but one which is built in conflict, but conflict between these classes that never fully erupts. There may be revolts. You may have the pitchforks come out. They may go surround the castle. You know, they may demand that the tithe go, you know, you know, less taxes to the landlord. Uh, they, They may get concessions. They may get beaten back, right? And then they go into penury again. They may escape. But this system was a system where struggle was habitual, it was traditional, and it was a struggle between classes that the European peoples, whether they're on the top or the bottom, were well-trained in over the centuries. It created a fundamental social cohesion, which capitalism, as soon as it showed up, started to destabilize and has never been able to uh, uh, stop. In fact, the process has only accelerated. Uh, it's a one-way ratchet that, has n- that because nothing in capitalism countervails it. So unlike feudalism, which, which, which led to social cohesion, capitalism is just a solvent on that immediately. Uh, and that created the process whereby these, these forms are becoming unstable. But that could lead, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an era of increased uh, capitalism, especially with industrialism, hype creating a new category of worker whose labor is more alienated than ever, whose life is more uh, immiserated than ever. But is doubly free. But is, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, this might have erupted, but... Before that social cohesion created by feudalism could be fully rendered, a new safety valve came into being. Ah, yes. And that new safety valve was emigration to the big empty spaces of the Western Hemisphere. All that social conflict, all of those irresolvable uh, fights, they don't have to be resolved because the, the the, the people who are... And fundamental odds, the people who are too excess in uh, population, too unable to access uh, basic subsistence, 
instead of having to fight for their very lives the way they would if they had to stay, they can hit the road. Yes, and and to say that another way, feudalism, as you said, as this stable, ordered system, as it breaks down uh, through actually the the pressures of marketization, mm -hmm. but also the increase in productive forces and technology, mm -hmm. it changes the entire scope of um, human productive activity from one of um, extensive growth, right? Where like if, if you want to create more crops, you will... Uh, uh, conquer or take over more lands, right? Uh, as Europe fills up with people, you know, especially after the Black Death and the human population uh, comes back in the Middle Ages, it gets to the point where that extensive spread within Europe can't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments for why it, capitalism uh, comes into being as such a powerful mode of production is that you now must become intensive. Mm -hmm. You must take the same amount of land, the same amount of labor at first, and then make it more productive in order for there to be, you know, more advancement and more growth and this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, as Matt points to, in a Europe that's filled with people, in a Europe where those people are accustomed to a certain traditional way of life within the feudal mode of production and also accustomed to fighting, you know, mm -hmm. for their rights, yes. for those customs and those obligations, all of a sudden with the discovery of the new world, which, yes, does include <laughs> what is now the United States of America, yep. you now have the ability to have another extensive growth of the capitalist market and capitalist social relations into other parts of the world. This is a sink for what Matt called surplus populations. Those are people who, you know, as you have more kids, but you don't have any more land, where do they go? You have an uh, uprising that, that gets put down. 1848, for example, yes. is, a, is a great example of that. Tons, thousands, millions of emigres leave because there's new lands that are opened up where this pressure valve of the class struggle mm -hmm. can then be resolved by sending people yep. off to a new place. And that meant that for the second half of the 19th century, which is when this, is, which is when this happened, which is when you either were going to get a socialist party or you weren't, the, the proving ground time, there's a, a stark difference in the social order of these two places, the United States and Western Europe. In Western Europe, not only, is so, uh, not only are people operating in the framework of remembered and still durable social obligations and customs from feudalism, but the, the, uh, the class struggle created by capitalism is being redirected outwards in the form of allowing for emigration. That means that that social cohesion still exists, and that means that when a social class comes into itself the way that labor classes did, the option of integrating them into the political system is uh, it's it's organic. It's it's arising out of a social order that has not been brutalized essentially and and rendered by class struggle. Of course, it was in the 20th century, and that's when all this all the, the bloods because he because this, the the book that spawned this question was written in 1906. Mm. By the mid century, these questions are largely moot. The rise of fascism. The, 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 all these, I mean, World War II, of course, breaks the idol, destroys the whole thing. Uh, all that tension in the string comes back. Mm. Uh, but in that moment before that, you still had these within the, so, because that's why it had to be directed outward in the form yeah. of uh, imperial warfare, because it was the, the focus on maintaining internal harmony was so strong, which means you integrate your party, your working class in, work rate, well, pressure from both bourgeois classes and the working class has led to a flowering of political freedoms and the creation of uh, a party democracy what a coincidence we're a, right. we're a, we're a, we're a party now or we have a part you, you want a party we're a class okay and that's what happened and germany is like the the perfect the, yes, fucking that, example yes the, that the 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 the, sur 
these the the one that became the model for all the other ones where all of the revisionism theory came from Kautsky Bernstein the, the place I mean th it's where the the first party was founded LaSalle it's 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 it is the hothouse because uh, because it's a place where uh, a lot of these uh, processes were the most firmly embedded mm. you're talking I mean you want to talk feudal this place was literally duchies and cantons <laughs> and, and free dozens cities and, and bishoprics and, yeah. until the middle of the 19th century yeah, for the yeah. love of god yeah, uh, but also uh, incredibly productive industrially mm -hmm. and uh, uh and very densely populated yeah. all the things you'd need for this process to be put in overdrive like the fucking mold on lisa's uh, tooth when she puts <laughs> it in the fucking uh, uh soda right. meanwhile though while that's happening in europe in the united states not only do you have the dispoilation and dispossession of a native people. Not only do you have the wholesale importation of another subject people to be a hyper-exploited slave class that builds the literal uh, productive capacity with their own blood. And Not just in the South, but also of in course, the North. Of course. So the, the, the entire uh, bourgeois economy of the North is just a feeder for the, for the, the blood run from the flesh of slaves in the south the, the famous Lehman brothers was yeah. actually begun by some uh, new york uh merchants and mm -hmm. traders who went down to trade in cotton and slaves in the south and this becomes you know the famous Lehman brothers that collapsed but northern capital is completely you cannot no. extricate that cannot from, be. from southern slavery that's why you had guys very guilty guys like the tappans who wanted to to sort of expunge their 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 sense of guilty conscience about being attendant to the whole thing by by funding the abolitionist movement. Mm. Uh, but so the, the 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 but who's doing this exploitation? Who's doing this? It is the European diaspora. It is people ripped from those social fabrics that we were talking about yes. that took centuries to build. Yes, ripped free of them, come to the new world to do what? To make a way make a way for them. Cells and their immediate family without any ties to the society, building new uh, communities out of scratch, and at the same time either directly exploiting the labor of slaves or uh, being party to the continued genocide of the native population. Right, right. So <clears throat> people have heard of Manifest Destiny. Of course, you probably got that in high school, mm -hmm. maybe even before. Go west, young uh, man, and grow yeah, up with the country. Yeah. There's, uh, there's the alterner thesis, which we can touch on. But yes. I just wanted to connect two different things because mean, we're telling this history about what's happening in Europe, about this history of class struggle within feudalism, a group of um, you know, different classes who are used to struggling. They're used to a certain customary uh, ordered way of life that's being disrupted within Europe, especially in the 19th century, right? Um, meanwhile, in the United States, without having had a social revolution uh, and creating a constitution that has embedded within it all of the principles of uh, bourgeois economy, mm -hmm. of course, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was cribbed directly from life, liberty, and property by John Locke. Indeed. Right? Uh, this was a from the beginning a capitalist society with a constitution built for that so when you take what matt's saying about all these this these surplus populations leaving europe and coming to this new world there was no political infrastructure within the united states to even uh, uh, mitigate in any sort of way the kind of class struggles that you saw not just under feudalism but rising industrial capitalism in europe yeah which leads us then past the genocide of the Native Americans and then past uh, the, the enslavement of millions and millions of uh, Africans and African Americans, right? It leads us to the great, tremendous, brutal, violent, often heroic 
labor struggles of the United States in the 19th century as this party form already exists, as this constitution already exists. Right. And that is, I think, um, the salient point when you talk about the violence, because I think a, a persuasive argument has been made that in the proximate, exp the best proximate explanation for the failure of a socialist party in the United States is the degree of violence the state was willing to meet out to oppose the labor movement, which was unique in the Western world. If you look at the U.S., th if you look at the labor history in countries like France, Germany, uh, Australia, uh, the U.K., and you compare the list of American, even just like the top ten most known labor atrocities, the Ludlow Massacre, sure. there was a homestead strike, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the Haymarket, yeah. uh, I mean, you can go on. They don't have anything like that. In, in uh, like I remember Jeremy Corbyn, uh, somebody uh, was trying to talk about how he's a communist because he he laid a wreath at, uh, at at the grave of like these these martyrs. It's it's like I forget the name of them, but there's a gravestone where these four guys got transported to Australia for forming a union. Oh. And this was in like the 1820s. Yeah. And it was four guys got yeah. transported to Australia for deciding to band together against an employer. Oh, oh, one of them, I think, died in Australia. One of them stayed there. Um, and then they, their case became a cause celeb, and they got clemency, and then the two other ones came home. And then that's it. That's the story. <laughs> and they're one of, that's one of the most... And they got hysterical about it. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. one of the most, like, <laughs> if that, like, the Peterloo Massacre. You know, oh, a couple right. guys got run over by a horse. Right, right. You know, well, the, the United... States one with Churchill, yeah. where they, he had a Tommy gun, yeah. and a bunch of workers got The killed. United yeah. States, it's like... Just unloading uh, firearms into helpless crowds. It's cutting off Frank Little's fucking balls and it's, stringing it's him from hanging uh, the Haymarket uh, martyrs. Yes, and uh, killing Joe Hill. Yeah, and killing Joe Hill, and yeah. onwards and onwards. And you know. and but the thing about that is, is that it is persuasive as a proximate cause because it is such an outlier. But it also only begs a question, really. So it's like, all right, well, why? And the answer mm. is because it's a different social structure. Yes, it's a social structure where. For a long time, labor was uh, defined by coercion to a degree that was completely transcended feudalism because a feudal uh, subject has a stake in the order. A slave does not and therefore is an existential threat. Yes. And so there is not the same relationship between right. worker and and uh, and manager right. uh, when when slavery is involved, right. and then slave slave revolts were not a safety valve; they were yes. an existential crisis exactly. for the system. Of the yes, United States. and that logic pervaded then once the industrial uh, working class comes into being and is peopled largely by immigrants, who provide another level of separation from uh, Americans, uh, who can therefore see them in the same sort of existential sense the same separateness right like i said it's the opposite of co-social cohesion yes and therefore anything is permissible like violence is permissible on a level that would be unthinkable in a europe whereby that kind of violence would rend a social fabric to a degree that would be detrimental to the ruling class a hundred percent and when you say that it makes me think like would it even be like could we even imagine something like the pinkertons yeah. in a European country at a similar time. Could you imagine, like, because as you said, the American working class is split by language, by yep. nationality, by the color line, of yep. course, right? Skills. By traditions yeah. and skills and, and all these different, and, and obviously gender, yeah. right? Um, you, 
in the, famously, uh, Jay Gould, the railroad tyrant and tycoon, said, I can hire one half of the working class to kill, kill the, the other, other half. half. Um, it's a lot easier to do that in a country where you've got kind of the detritus, you know, the yes. surplus from the old world who are dis, uh, disembedded yeah. from their cultural and tradition and their lives that they had there. There's these immigrants coming and they're also unable to communicate with one mm -hmm. another. And this is like one of, of course, the beautiful things about the IWW on um, partially why they failed, right? Is that you could actually have a, if people don't know, because we're going to go back to basics here, uh, when Matt talks about violence, it was not just the state. The state actually is a little late to the game when it comes to violence, uh, when there were injunctions and the National Guard would come mm -hmm. in and shoot up a bunch of workers. There were private armies. Like, yes. let's, be let's be clear, folks. Like, the capitalist class of the United States, the Pinkertons and others, were a private mercenary army. They are the future that right libertarians want. Oh, yeah. Essentially. Yes. <laughs> like, uh, the, the level of violence in, uh, it was, was it the Ludlow Massacre? Where yes. they... Uh, they, they had the tents. They machine gun. Of, uh, it was an encampment of families. Yes. Oh. And they opened fire with fucking Maxim machine guns, just strafed them, and knocked over cooking lamps and caused a fire that just cooked women and children to death in the pits that they built underneath the tents. And that is, as you say, very unique. And I think that the immigrant and the race line thing is important, and also the frontier aspect of it, too. But I want to go back to, to what... Um, the political question again, because I think this this ties in well with it, is that um, because we had this political revolution and not a social revolution, and because the U.S. Constitution is both, as you said, with Hamilton, a conservative document, but also one that is deeply imbued and embedded uh, with uh, bourgeois rights, uh, with you know, with property and obligation and contract to the market. Um, a fun fact: the reason why. You could have a Pinkerton. The reason why strikes could be broken so violently and brutally in the United States and so often, you know, for what, uh, since the 1830s to the 1930s. So this hundred year period is that labor, it's almost Marxist in a sense, right? Uh, the way that the Supreme Court would argue it is that um, your labor, they wouldn't call it labor power, right? But your ability to work for a boss is a commodity. Mm -hmm. And if you were you and your cohorts were to go on strike together and uh, you were to stop other commodities, i.e. human beings, from going into that factory because you had these certain demands, then you are actually breaking one of the fundamental aspects of the American social and political system, which is freedom of contract and freedom of trade. Because if labor is a commodity, you cannot band together to stop a capitalist from buying human labor. Yep. This was the law. This was the foundation all the way up into the Wagner Act in the mm -hmm. 1930s. So it's not like, oh, you know, America had such brutal capitalists. They were the worst people in the world. You've got all these divisions. Like Nockner, it was Nockner, built, Lockner. Yeah, it was built into the actual political and social fabric of this country that labor did not have the right to do the things that, again, customarily with like the guild system yes. in Europe, yeah. people had won the right to do over and over and over again. And yes, that right. Correct. Yeah. So then how you tie this again back into the more surface explanation, which is the political party system in the United States versus, say, the UK or, or Germany or elsewhere, I think is by, again, reiterating this point based on what we just talked about, that the United States political party system never actually had a working class, uh, uh, like a directly working class party, like the Labor Party, like uh, for, for 
uh, decades, essentially the unions put up yeah. you know, their delegates to run uh, in the party. There was a direct connection, for better or for worse. I mean, actually, the joke about the UK Labour Party is that it was more Methodist than Marxist. Yeah. But <laughs> be that as it may, right, they have an uh, NHS and we don't, right? The, the right. Democratic Party, um, even at its height, right, it, it, you, you couldn't even call that a, a true Labour Party, right? No, it was never a Labour Party. It was, per, it was a Labourer's Party, uh, partially, uh, when it was originally founded because it was a coalition of urban immigrants and yeoman farmers. Uh, and the thing is, is that they didn't really have uh, much in the way of common interests besides uh, a hostility towards finance capital as it was emerging uh, because there was this dim awareness, even if working class didn't exist, that there was a threat to uh, autonomy and livelihood, either if you're working as a as a uh, farmer or if you're trying to sell labor in, a, in an urban area uh, but that was kind of it uh, as in terms of what united them and then over time the the opposition to the democrats coalesced first into the whigs mm -hmm. and then into the republicans and they also had a pitch to workers right uh, uh and, free and labor free land exactly yeah. and a pit and a, and a very strong pitch to uh to yeoman farmers i mean uh, it's it's. I think Jackson would have probably had a stroke to see that it was the Re uh, Republican Party, the heir to the Whigs, who passed the Homestead Act. Yeah, yeah. Uh, vote yourself a farm. I mean, that would have been a Democratic, uh, you know, slogan. I mean, Dinesh D'Souza loves that that was the Republicans. Right. right of course. Um, <laughs> so it was just one one element among others, and of course, like others, over time it became uh, marked by the same racial uh, and uh, um, regional and also ethnic lines to the point where you get the 1924 Democratic Convention in New York that took 108 ballots. Was that the, Al Smith? Yeah, it? no, yeah. he was running okay. against a guy, John McAdoo, who I think had been uh, Wilson's Treasury Secretary, uh, and they were both running as stand-ins for the urban, it was, it was ostensibly about uh, prohibition. Hmm. It, was about the, it was between the wets and the dries. But that was a stand-in for region and, and employment. The urban working-class Catholics were backing Smith and uh, the end of Prohibition, and the uh, rural Protestant farmers were backing McAdoo and the um, and and burning and the dries. And burning crosses. On they the were yes. against Al Smith. They were Catholic. there were there was a, <laughs> yeah. there were Klan marches in front of the the. Uh, convention hall Who needs fist a, fights a, inside a, it a papist uh, president yeah. you know run by rome Who they, they ended up uh picking a compromise candidate uh but then you know four years later smith got it relatively easily because that fight was won um but it was never it was never hegemonic as he said and so fdr gave it its biggest influence on a major party that period from fdr till Probably uh, the Hubert Humphrey campaign, yeah, which was in almost entirely funded by the AFL-CIO yeah. and the Sargento Frozen uh, Food uh, Company in Minnesota, I believe. Are you serious? I think so. Is yeah. that some local history? For yeah. Like, uh, wh what did they do in that whole thing? Uh, there was a guy who owned it who was just a big, big, great friend and fan of Hubert Humphrey. Oh wow! And so he wrote huge checks for the oh. campaign. So to replace the uh, the AFL-CIO yeah. money, like. Um, I think an important thing, too, when we start to talk about, as you said, the Democrats becoming this sort of, you know, labor party is you have these cross class and, you know, kind of like urban versus rural divides uh, within the party system. 
And as you said before, uh, these two parties are eventually able to kind of co-opt and recuperate any sort of threat that might come from the populist party or, you know, uh, what was it called? The uh, People's Party. Yeah. Um, the Farmers, you know, the Greenback Party, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. Um, part of the issue that's happening in the United States um, up until th this moment uh, at the turn of the 20th century is that when we had that frontier, when we still had a manifest destiny, uh, the United States itself, similar to what we were talking about with the, you know, capitalist countries of Europe, also had this safety valve. And it was not for nothing that the uh, that these property rights were written into the Constitution of the United States because it was written for yeoman farmers and artisans and merchants. Mm -hmm. There was this sense that we're not held down by these old feudal customs and by defending property rights we're defending the majority of the people who were small landowners or they had a you know they were heads of a guild or they were you know traders in in cities whatever the case may be but similar to what's happening you know that's th this process of sending european workers over to the united states as the frontier in the united states closes right as uh capitalism uh basically degrades our own sort of artisan system and turns it more towards mass production and there's no more room for people to push out into a homestead act that class struggle rises not because you know workers are particularly ornery or because bosses are particularly greedy right yeah. it's because these same processes that happened in europe are now taking place in the united states there's a direct confrontation now and that manifests itself incredibly you know in the strikes of the 1870s and into the 1890s and then I think the real formation of what we conceive of as a the closest thing to a labor party is the heroic period of struggle that creates the Congress of Industrial Organizations uh, in the uh, 1930s, which really, with FDR latching onto it, it seems like the United States has finally caught up to the rest of the world. It looks like to a lot of people that we have the Workers' Party. My great-grandfather that I told you about to his dying day had a framed picture of FDR on his wall because he was literally the man that helped him with his union struggles and that he yeah. voted Democrat for the rest of his life. Yeah. But, however, I think uh, you would argue perhaps that uh, the, the sense that uh, we finally found that socialist or that Labor Party and the Democrats is maybe a little... A little tenuous. Well, what happened was the the end of the of the second civil war and the advent of the cold war. It's like it's it's like throwing a bucket of water, a fucking freezing water on it, because uh, there's just a general reactionary trend away from the consolidation that had happened, and in a s country where at that point, uh, you know, the labor party would be inextricably linked. Uh, or the Labor Party would be organically tied together. Uh, and institutionally tied. Yeah. yeah. Uh, then that would leave them little strategic move to uh, to pivot, you know, because they're tied. The Democrats weren't like that. The Democrats weren't tied to labor movement. So they were able to pivot and try to grab a different segment at the expense of labor, at the expense of the CIO. To, to, because as people have pointed out, uh, you know, the, the, the Red Scare started with Truman. Yeah. I mean, uh, and Atchison. Yeah. Uh, it, it was it was only later refined by guys like Nixon and uh, and McCarthy. Yeah. For the, the folks who this is a new history to. Right. So the CIO is this incredible moment, especially during the war for very 
like bizarre historical reasons, right, grows to like eight million people mm-hmm. over the course of like these massive social struggles and is like fully integrated into FDR's New Deal. But then as Matt points out, you have the Taft-Hartley Act. Uh, the, didn't they call it like the, the slavery, like yeah. the, the wage slavery <laughs> act yeah. or something the the uh, the union leaders did and the, and the leftists within the United States? Um, very quickly, the communist, socialist and anarchist forces that were the real spearhead behind this militant labor uh, union that had been tied into the Democratic Party with the rise of the Cold War. The Taft-Hartley comes out as really the opening salvo. Um, against the left, against socialism in the United States. And people always think of McCarthy and they think of like, how dare you, sir? Have you no decency? But really, the most crucial moment, I think, for breaking that linkage between the militancy of the working class and the organic ties with the working class is the Taft-Hartley Act, which besides, you know, putting in laws that make it harder to organize, also required the unions to kick out any communists that were uh, members, also to uh, have a loyalty oath to the United States. So under Truman, a Democrat, uh, you know, he vetoed it, and uh, the anti-communist sentiment in 1947 was so great that it passed over his veto. Uh, the the first moment of Red Scare was against was internal. It was yep. against those forces within the United mm-hmm. States who wanted a deeper social democracy, something like socialism. And. Uh- as has been pointed out, uh, the first chair of the House and American Activities Committee, Martin Dees, was a Democrat. There you go. From Texas, because that those Southern Democrats were a key component of that uh, of that uh, coalition, and they were. It was not a mutual. Uh, it, it was only very broadly uh, mutual goals at that point. There was deep contra- conflict between. Uh, the labor base of the Democrats and the, and the Southern reactionary base. We'll give you your Tennessee Valley authority. We will um, allow workers to organize, but not domestics and not yes. farm workers. And not down here. We'll keep it a state issue. You can do what you want. Go hog wild in New York. Yeah. But uh, we're we're going to be keeping run- we're going to keep running uh, keep running those labor organizers out of town on a rail. Exactly. The Southern strategy fails. The Democratic Party, even at its height of what we could call laborism or socialism, is a deeply contradictory political formation that includes both reactionary elements and also progressive elements. Mm-hmm. Um, never a labor party. Never. This is crucial, yeah. I think. So as you said, like moving forward in this golden age of American capitalism, uh, by the time you get to the 60s and 70s, labor had always been an interest group, a very important one, a hegemonic one, right? But... As years went by and capitalist, capitalism went into crisis in the late 60s and into the 70s, and uh, you had more and more professional managerial types, and you started fighting on the, uh, I don't know, the battlefield of culture instead of bread and butter, right? Mm-hmm. It became the constituency that the Democratic Party could essentially jettison yeah. and still win all elections. these all these suburbanites all these knowledge industry suburbanites who had property oh they houses. got yeah they're worried about their school district <laughs> yeah. and what's this all these industries are willing to give us money too now that we're not now that we're not tied to labor in Ooh. such a way that we have to vote uh, in their interests they're willing to give us more money so that uh, we have a broader mind on these issues yeah uh this is fantastic and then yeah uh, labor dies on the vine uh, but uh, this leads to, I think, a really interesting uh, thing that Eric Foner once pointed out yeah, in Eric a piece, Fon- in an yes. article he wrote called Why Is There No uh, Socialism in the United States? I got uh, a boner for Foner. Give it to Indeed. Me. And he wrote this in the 80s, and it's a piece where he, re- he restates the question w- with almost a century of, of additional knowledge that Sobert had. And he goes methodically through many different 
suggestions. Uh, he picks them up. He turns them around. He grants them their explanatory power. Then he points out their deficiencies. He points out the deficiencies in all of them, says none of them are fully satisfying. Even together, they leave some questions. And he leaves it sort of unresolved in that sense. But then he asks a separate question that is incredibly precise, uh, uh, insightful, especially considering when he wrote it, which was the mid-'80s, mm. uh, which is that he looked around and he said, Sombart was asking this question when the American Democratic Party, this hybrid cross-class party with, you know, uh, stitched together out of all these parts and always co-opting the left without ever really uh, being it beholden to it, uh, contrasted with things like the Social Democratic Party in Germany, this solid, organic labor party. But to look at that, qu ask that question, in the, even in the 80s, you were looking at political parties in Europe that may have those still names, same names, but that in their particulars es were essentially identical mm. in their trajectory and policies mm. to the American Democratic Party. Mm, right, right, right. And right. so Fauner says, in, in now, knowing what we know, the real question is, why was the United States basically first? Why did we? Why are we ahead of the curve? On the neoliberal turn. Exactly, wow, because yeah. they're all because because yeah. Sombart asking a meaningful question because he didn't know what these these parties were going to end up. I mean, maybe fucking Kautsky was right. Maybe they were going to vote themselves socialism yeah. in Germany. Well, you had the fucking, Who could know? You had the Meidner plan in Sweden. Exactly, like even the, into the 20th century. Yeah, well, in, in the 1970s, they were yes. literally going to expropriate capital they and were give just it to gonna, the workers through like social soft, democracy. It was a soft guillotine. <laughs> yes. They were going to just buy the stock <laughs> until they owned it all. Know, and it almost worked. It almost it so worked. Close. It was at the high point. Oh, like, God. Uh, the, the peaceful road. Oh, to, yeah. Uh, to real socialism. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating to flip it on its head. And it's like, but now those parties, are, are basically the American Democratic yeah, Party. Yeah, and, and, and to the extent that they even exist, they're fucking dead, mm -hmm. right? Because they took this neoliberal turn, and um, the, the, even with like the Labour Party in the UK, and Corbyn is actually a very, very uh, interesting kind of counterexample, and maybe we'll talk about what the future holds for this, right? But like the Labour Party in the UK never lost its ties to the union. Nope. Even even Tony Blair, even though he got rid of rid of Article Four for what that was worth, that said that you know we should collectivize the means of production as the Labour Party yeah. or whatever. They even Tony Blair could never jettison the power of the labor unions, yeah. right? It still meant, and this again I think shows us like the deep world historical and like historical materialist reasons like why these things or at least it begs the question of like why across the entire capitalist globe does this shift yep. happen and what is it about the united states that we may have been exceptional but only to the extent that we got there first exactly and i think we've sort of i think we've gotten towards it in what we've talked about when the the vagaries of this created a situation where the the, the europe was operating with this buffer this the socially coherent buffer uh, inherited from feudalism and maintained by the pressure valve of emigration that allowed it to withstand the pressures because that's the amazing thing about industrial capitalism. Once it really gets going is that uh, in, in, the, in the Western Hemisphere and in, nor nor in Europe, it, it, it takes hold and it spreads immensely quickly oh, and, it, yeah. and it integrates things at an astonishing speed. Yes. Uh, it's that acid that dissolves. It's uh, just, all, it's, all it, it goes crazy. Yeah. But Th it, this buffer of, 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 of vestigial feudal ties and obligations mm. and social cohesion buys them some time, basically. <laughs> right, yeah, so that, that means yeah. that in their heyday of social democracy, yeah. 
which we all had about the same time too, for the same reason, yeah. reacting to uh, fa- uh, the Great Depression even and in, fascism. Even in fascist Germany, exactly, there was a, a very similar move towards state-oriented uh, developmentalism. But that's but it's that there. what they got out of it <laughs> before the tide rolled back yeah. was more significant mm. because of that buffer zone. Because yes. of it allowed the cultivation of of organic and durable demo- repu- uh, labor parties. So when when the tide rolls back. They are left in, in, a, in an impoverished situation and rapidly deteriorating, but with things like NHS, right. <laughs> with things like uh, 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 social care. It's, it's, it's a greater height for exactly. which they, haul, they fall. And so they're yeah. falling from far. So yeah. they have, we got a little bit of stuff. We were able to get uh, a social care for 65 and older, but only, oh, we couldn't get it. We were, and, you know, uh, like there was plans on the table for free college for everyone on mm. the fucking board during the first Johnson administration, during the Johnson administration, and then Vietnam came along, and it just wiped it right off of the table. So we were getting there, but we were retarded. We were held back. He does not had, mean that I don't in the mean way that. that you think he means. I mean literally. P- kept back. We were kept back <laughs> by the fact that we were thrown like crabs into a bucket yeah. to fight it off on this blood-soaked, expropriated land. Yes. And so we didn't have the durable social uh, formations to negotiate with capital on the best possible terms. We were at a hand behind our back. They were able to negotiate a much better terms before it all started to fall apart. Yes, and I would add only one thing to that too, and it's I don't want to make like a, a vulgar uh, geographical determinist argument. I also don't want to make a Malthusian argument too. But at the same, the, the the structural change that happened within the United States with the suburbanization, the movement of the working class through state subsidy, by the way, uh, from the cities and into the suburbs, in a way, kind of revives that yeoman sense of like ownership and property and propriety, which is very deleterious. It had been in the 19th century and it, it revives itself in the 1950s and 60s as working class enclaves in the Midwest or in New York City are dispersed. Your union hall used to be up the street from your house. You used to, you know, all the Swedes, the squareheads down in Sunset Park, <laughs> you know, they all had the same union and they all would have the parades together. Yeah. All of a sudden they're in New Jersey, they're yep. in Staten Island, they're in the, and then home ownership then becomes the American dream, which takes it from a collective like we're a union solidaristic network of workers together, you know, and there is some potential for socialism there to we are dispersed, atomized uh, monads living with our picket fences in the suburbs and our material interests then come to be reflected in our political interests. That is that I honestly think that that doesn't get talked about enough as a cause like a, a fundamental fact. Is that is that suburbanization just helped drive a fucking stake in the heart of working class culture in this country? It, it basically made it impossible. Yeah. And the thing is, is that they liked it. Yeah. They wanted it too. But why wouldn't you? Of I mean, course. You're living in a fucking tenement. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the, you're, you're a veteran. And if you're white, especially, the government's yeah. going to give you a cheap fucking mortgage. Exactly. Everyone wanted that. Everyone yeah. wanted a piece of it. And then and they were happy to give it. And it was this. It, it satisfied the material me- desires of a working class. So in a direct sense, it was something that they would have uh, would have put on their agenda. But with the long term effect of dissolving solidarity and yes. acid. And that, I think, is a perfect fucking place to end this out with talking about. Given this history, what is the future? Because on that suburbanization tip, right, we've seen now a flight of both capital and skilled labor back into the cities and the suburbs and the exurbs are now the new essentially ghettos Mm -hmm. in the United States of America. Right. Um, The the extent to which what's called neoliberalism uh, has 
I don't know, imbricated itself in every aspect of American life has to be complete. I'm not sure how much farther it can go. Can it go farther? Uh, I don't, I don't I mean, until we dissolve into gray goo. <laughs> I mean, I feel I feel real imbricated, bro. <laughs> I feel so fucking imbricated. <laughs> I feel lubricated from. I am years, soaking but, uh, it. Yeah, fucking like. Here's the thing is, is, is we've bounced back and forth in this long history between like there being this extensive, this intensive, there being an inside, there being an outside, there being yep. like these institutions and organic holes and connections. And in a way, like the suburbanization and even in a sense, neoliberalism was able to rescue capitalism from its doldrums in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. But it seems like we're living in this weird like interregnum period since the crash of 10 years ago where that neo- neoliberal order is dead or oh, dying yeah. it's, but it's, a, it's a bloated corpse and and, and 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 but the new world is yet to be born even indeed. if that's a now is the time world. of monsters yes indeed. Said. so many monsters and yeah, some of them some are orange big orange <laughs> fucking monsters with tiny fucking fingers <laughs> you seen steve bannon lately yeah <laughs> that is a rough beach slousing towards bethlehem <laughs> holy fuck slouching towards fucking wall street so like slouching I, towards <laughs> golden corral <laughs> the question is then right like given this history and, and given that that startling turn that you gave with the phoner which really kind of flips things on its head you know if the united states is exceptional for political economic reasons and historical materialist reasons and all these other sort of contingent aspects that we talk about political yeah. reasons right like what is what could we even imagine a potential socialist movement or future even looking like in the United States, let alone in Europe or Asia or elsewhere? It's a huge question. It's a huge question, and it's the hardest question to answer because it's, in my opinion, the opening premise is the most challenging question for socialists have ever felt in any context, from from theoretical to the practical application, and that is internationalism. Mm. It's it's it was understood from the beginning of Marx to be crucial to the project, but it has been an incredible stumbling block. The entire existence of real socialism and real social activism. Nineteen fourteen, baby. Oh, that it might just, have been when everything was proved wrong. Yep. Honestly, failed. honestly, nationalism is such an enduring and and persistent bug, uh, and it's nauseating watching these cheap mountebanks mm. like fucking. Um, uh, to Tucker Carlson oh, yeah. and Richard Spencer and Tulsi Gabbard taking uh, socialism and just cynically welding it to this revanchist notion of humanity that says the only people who counter inside our borders. Yes. Because they're moving towards a syncretic concept of na- everyone is. It's all marching towards it's a, a third syncretic position. concept <laughs> of the third position of yes. national socialism. Because they recognize, unlike the other deluded idiots on the right, the capitalism is dead. Something will come up from it. They don't want to cede it to the international revolutionary movement for the love of God. They want to rescue what they can. And if that's just the hierarchies, if that's just the racial and class hierarchies, they'll take those. Oh, sure. if they, they'll negotiate on everything else. And so they're pitching to people who have the nascent sense of how much they're exploited and how miserable they are and how capitalism has failed them. And they say, yes, why is this happening to you? Why is this happening to us, the good people on Earth, the right. people who matter? Yeah. Why is that happening? Western civilization. Exactly. Yeah. And so that creates this bunker fortress socialism. That all, and, and, it's, and the thing is, it's compatible with drone war. Yeah. It's compatible with endless uh, techno war. Because they, they a lot of them like to talk about how they're anti-war. A lot of credulous leftists like to celebrate them for being anti-war. But they're only anti-war to the degree that they want to reduce American vulnerability elsewhere. Oh, spending sure. blood and treasure to not, do, not be doing what needs to be done, which is defending hierarchies 
uh, and racial classes at, and, and gender regimens at home. And if you, can, if you can create a techno war on terror that's like a self-mowing, a lawnmower that like operates on its own power, just a fleet of AI-equipped uh, uh, drones yeah. that bomb on their own recognizance yeah. and don't involve any human input and they're solar-powered and never land and kill 5,000 people a year, they would have no problem with that. If people fucking pile up at the fucking wall in, in their hundreds of millions of corpses, like they don't have a problem with that either. Yeah, and all. the thing is, is that that's no alternative to neoliberalism because neoliberalism leads there too. Right, <laughs> yes. It does... It, it, it's fascinating because we were talking about inside and outside, right? What is the, the most salient uh, political, I don't know, issue right now? Uh, we know because the government's still shut down. It's migration, right? Yeah. There's no longer any outside to capitalism. Right. So there's only now borders. There's only protecting yourself from the inside, yep. from those people who in the past would have gone to quote-unquote virgin lands yes. in order to make a better life for themselves. So internationalism as socialists means way more now than it meant at Absolutely. any other time. Because if we don't do internationalism, it's almost like it's structurally dependent that if we continue with capitalism, that it will have to be nationalistic. Mm -hmm. And if it is nationalistic, it is going to be chauvinistic. Yep. And if it's going to be chauvinistic, but also pretend to keep some sort of stability and order for the working people within that, it's going to have to provide essentially what's called a heron-voke social democracy, which is you know benefits for the right people, the white people, right? Mm -hmm. And everybody else, damn them, with the climate crisis happening, uh, with because it's going to be still low. It's a resource it's, issue. Who's going to get the resources? Because they're we're it's out not, of free ones. It's, exactly. <laughs> it's 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 no longer a question of allocating resources, uh, uh, a a bounty of resources. It's a question of light the lifeboat, and it's who's out and in. And that's why socialism. It's if it's going to be an alternative, and I think this is the pitch to to the to the less cynical of these people who are drawn in by some of this, is that if it's going to be an alternative to fucking capitalism, because it's all leading to the same thing. It's all leading to walls and fucking bloodbaths. And, and a racial caste and, and probably the army controlling the economy anyway. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, uh, like the markets are going to be secondary to just maintaining sustenance. Uh, so it's all leading there anyway. It's just a question of, of the direction. If there's going to be a meaningful alternative, it has to start from the assumption that everybody is worthy of life regardless of where they're born and that everybody is, 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 uh, is worthy, is, is desires the fruits of existence as we all do equally, and that the only way we're getting it is by cooperating. Right. The only way we're going to bring this, because this, all these resources are going to be depleted. We're going to cook the earth into competition with each other. On a national basis, everyone's going to eventually resolve around externalizing the, the problem and internalizing the gain. Uh, uh, external, yeah, externalities out and, and, get, and privatizing the gains to your, to your group. And, and to get out of the, the political and, and nation-state question, which I think, as you say, is very fucking crucial right now, even just from like, you know, the vulgar sort of forces of production <laughs> analysis of history, right? It is true that the Green New Deal uh, would be a great stopgap measure and would probably do great things for people in the United States of America, right? But in terms of the intensive um, increase in technology and techniques of producing the things like food and uh, goods uh, cheaply, uh, you know, and, and for all in this capitalist global economy right that hard work has been done like capitalism has done yes. that job yes it's very it's 
Like never before has the world been so pregnant for a post-scarcity society. Absolutely. But never before have the stakes been so fucking high in making it happen within a generation. Yes. Because we have the ability to move beyond, call it, you can call it socialism, you can call it communism, you can just call it like, you know, happy fun rainbow uh, mode of production, whatever you want to call it, right? Like we are pregnant with the ability to overcome both borders and also scarcity. And the more we realize that we are backed into this corner now, like you were saying, right? Where either which way we go, it's fucking global genocide yeah. on a massive scale. Uh, you know, the Peter Thiel's of the world and their fucking vampire castles, just yep. sucking the semen out of babies, whatever the <laughs> fuck they do to live the rest of their lives, uh, you know, before we all get fucking boiled in the oceans, yep. right? It is absolutely necessary that the folks out there who, who care, uh, as we do, and if you're listening to this, you do, to understand that that history of a failure of socialism in the United States does not necessarily mean that we need to go back and ape what was done 100 and 120 years ago. We live in different, a different period now. I'm not saying Bernie Sanders is bad, but perhaps we don't need a new New Deal. Perhaps we need an internationalist, cooperative movement or even call it a revolution if you want right that instead of the choice of neoliberal death or fascist death gives us the other option which is to live in the i'm going to sound cheesy now but you know the community of mankind humankind and i think that um it's the goal it should be the goal and it uh, certainly should be the uh, prerogative of every leftist out there to start thinking of new tactics new strategies and new ideas to get us out of this fucking cul-de-sac because the cul-de-sac's on fire yeah yeah, it really is a blank page, uh, and uh, no bad ideas in brainstorming, folks. Yeah, guys, let's just just throw everything at the fucking wall. Yeah. So just because you know there's no socialism, there's no labor party in the United States, that's fine. Yeah. We're gonna move forward. Now you know why. Absolutely. Let's uh, just just move past it with that knowledge. Think about what that means, and arm yourself to the teeth. Get a bunk. <laughs> no, don't do that. I don't do, do that. Recommend doing that. Don't do that. I'm I'm, I'm already on probation. <laughs> we'll talk about that in the Discord. But uh, I think that's good for today. Uh, yeah, I think we should probably do another one of these. Sometimes. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, let's do some more. Yeah, we'll definitely do some more. So a uh, uh, big thanks to uh, Matt Chrisman for coming on the Antifada again. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was great. Oh, hell yeah. We will definitely do it again. So uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening to our um, very deep and awesome yeah. and uh, kind of maybe potentially confusing but awesome history i'm sure a lot of people are going to be like okay all right <laughs> sure enjoy this while you're uh, uh, washing your dishes and going one drink a couple of beers that'll help for sure time. Totally all right folks signing off thanks so much bye